Over the past few months, we've seen time and time and time again that as God's plan of redemption goes out into the world, as it, as it unfolds just as he has promised, there is an unending war that's actually being waged between two, between two kingdoms. The first is the kingdom of God and his desire to be worshipped amongst the Gentiles. And the other is the kingdoms of this world and their desire to undermine that, to usurp, usurp the glory of God. Nowhere is this displayed more intensely in the scriptures than in the book of Exodus, where we see the unfolding power struggle between Yahweh and Pharaoh, as, as Yahweh calls his people out of Egypt and out of bondage. We need to ask ourselves, does God still work in such a way these days? What happens when these two co competing worlds clash, these two competing kingdoms clash in, in the advance of the kingdom? What happens when governments or leaders rise up and take a stand against God? Well, this morning we're going to see that God's plan is continuing to unfold according to his sovereign intentions. In fact, Luke intentionally uses the Exodus as a backdrop to everything that we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 12, to see a picture that as the gospel goes forth, the same struggle is repeated time and time again. God is redeeming his people. God's deliverance is his gracious, merciful, unmerited gift, and anyone who would oppose that are condemned. God's purposes cannot be thwarted by men. Evil rulers, such as Pharaoh, such as Herod, will lose their lives. Now, to add to that picture of God's deliverance, he's working all this out in the early church, and he's saying that there is a similarity between what's going on in Acts and the book of Exodus. So, he adds to that one more important element, that is what we call the contingency of earnest prayer, the prayers of God's people. And so with these two things coming together, we have a very unique purpose statement this morning. God is sovereignly delivering his people, just like he did in the past, and he uses the contingency of earnest prayer to accomplish his purposes. As you're writing that down, let me just say it again. God is sovereignly delivering his people like he did in the past, and he uses the contingency of earnest prayer to accomplish his purposes. As we begin, the first thing that we need to notice is that the setting has changed, hasn't it? For the last two chapters, as we've been you know, working and, and unpacking these, this book, Luke's attention has been on this side story. That is the gospel's first advance out into the world. We've seen that it goes out to in Caesarea to Cornelius and his family who come to salvation by faith. And we see that in Antioch, the first believers there were called Christians. Now, in, starting in chapter 13, we're going to see from 13 right to the end of the book, Luke is going to pick up this thread again of salvation to the Gentile. He's going to devote the rest of the writing of the book of Acts to that. But here in chapter 12, before he continues with the unfolding of God's redemption and his plan for the Gentiles, Luke directs our attention one more time 
back to Jerusalem. And he does so for a very important lesson. Now, in these opening verses, we see the reality. We, we can feel the weight of the persecution that the church was under, can't we? The, the situation is dire. It's desperate. King Herod has killed James, and he's arrested Peter. His intention is, is to kill Peter also. We know that so that he, he deals with this rabble group of Jesus followers as best he can and just kind of wipes them off the face of the map. map. But because it's the time of the Passover, Herod has to wait a couple of days for the actual trial and, and execution that's going to happen to Peter. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last eight, nine chapters, there's been a growing intensity in the persecution, hasn't there? It's been escalating. Stephen had been killed because he was boldly preaching the gospel. Uh, right out in front of the, the temple gate. But now we see a deliberate attempt to systematically exterminate the leadership of the early church. James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunders, is beheaded by the sword. And now Peter, the undisputed leader of the faith at this point, is next. But notice Who's at the helm? Who's behind all of this persecution? It's not the Sanhedrin. It's not the ruling leaders of the Jewish faith. They were in full agreement, but this is Herod, the king of the Roman area that we know as the Tetrarch or, or the, the, the kingdom of Judea within the emperor, the empire of Rome. Now, this is the third Herod that we uh, read about in the Gospels. This is more of a title. His grandfather was Herod, and he was the one who had every male baby two years or younger executed uh, at the birth of Christ. And, and just like his grandfather, this Herod was a Christ hater. He was a man pleaser. He was an opportunist. He, he wanted power for himself. He ingratiated himself to his subjects, the Jews, and uh, he, he was just adamantly against the faith. This Herod had, had come to power because he was a childhood friend of the new emperor Caligula. In his early teens, he had gotten so far into debt that he actually was imprisoned under Tiberius. When Tiberius died, his old childhood friend Caligula comes to power. And uh, Caligula gets him out of prison <clears throat> and actually uh, gives him the title of king. Now, Herod was only part Jewish. He was of the Edomites. But he takes great lengths to play the role of being the king of Judah. Even reading the scriptures out loud at any of the special services that he was allowed to be at. Here's the thing. Herod wasn't a true follower of Yahweh. It was a name only, even though he was the figurehead. He was the leader of the political reality. But his religious faith was feigned, and it allowed him to be able to rule over the area, basically with an, with an iron fist. Verse 3 also tells us that he arrested Peter because he knew it pleased the Jews. And we know from Jewish historians at the time, that again, that he was a crowd pleaser. 
He kept his power, he kept his popularity by, by trying to appease the greatest number of people, and that was the Jewish uh, people in, in, in the area that he was ruling over. He acted out of political expediency, again, ingratiating himself to the Jews, playing the part of a great benefactor, but he was actually leading or like a, like a king with an iron fist, doing pretty much what he wanted. So the persecution has grown fierce. The church in Jerusalem is under this weight of a stress of having Caesar's own appointed representative and close buddy since childhood now ruling over them. And he's doing everything he can to keep the favor of the Jews. Now in Herod's animosity towards anything that threatened this relationship, He's rounding up the leaders of the early church, and he wants to do away with them. As we read these verses, we can get a sense of the uncertainty and uh, the stress and how scared the early church must have been. It, would it have been safe for their women to go to the market or to go and get water? Was it possible for the men to go out onto the streets and celebrate during the Passover time? Was it safe? every aspect of life was under scrutiny and heaven forbid if there was any slip-ups any misunderstood words or actions you know if one could find themselves in in prison in, in a blink of an eye yet luke tells us there is hope despite the religious and political power that is aligned against the fledgling church the church is earnestly praying. This isn't just prayer, coming and, and, and praying without a connection. This is earnest. This is fervent crying out to God for mercy, a pleading for God's guidance and justice. And as the tense of the verb tells us, it's an ongoing, unending pleading. <clears throat> meaning that throughout this whole time of the celebration of the feasts, several days, they continue to pray unendingly. Interesting enough, the only other place that you, Luke ever uses this word earnest in relationship to prayer is when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, just hours before his death, and he's praying, he's in agony, his sweat is falling as if it was blood. And it gives us an idea of the quality of the prayer of the early church. This wasn't simply coming on a Thursday night for a prayer meeting and having a list of things and quickly going through them. This was hard sweat work. This was prayer that felt the weight and the anxiety of the situation and unburdened its soul to the Lord. Humanly speaking, the situation for the early church was desperate. All seemed hopeless. And Herod and all, all the religious leaders despised them. Herod is determined to kill the spiritual leaders. Yet, there is earnest prayer. Fervent, ardent, intense, impassioned prayer. It doesn't take much to imagine what they must have been praying for, does it? Uh, undoubtedly, they were, they were praying for James's family, that they would be comforted, 
They were praying for God's purposes that whatever that purpose is in this horrendous situation, God would reveal it and comfort them. Perhaps they were praying for God somehow to intervene, that Peter wouldn't be killed, that he'd be released. Protection. They, they wanted the rest of us somehow, the rest of them to, to know the protection of God. Perhaps they were even praying for the justice of God to be enacted in this situation. This was a desperate life or death reality, not only for the spiritual leaders, but for anyone who called themselves a follower of Christ. It, it loomed over them. It was a, a heavy weight and it brought them to their knees in desperate prayer. Why is it that prayer seems to be the only time when we bring ourselves to earnest prayer, when things are crashing in around us, we're losing our job, our marriage is falling apart, we're, we're struggling to parent our kids, there's a life-threatening disease, and all of a sudden, the weight, the reality of the shortness of life just weighs so heavy. Earnest prayer is not the first choice of our desire. It's too often the, the option of our last resort. That's when most of us get serious about prayer, right? <laughs> we can go for days, weeks, perhaps even months and, and not develop, never develop a prayer life. But as soon as the world starts to get a little crazy, as soon as I feel the weight of, of reality crushing down on me, that's when we go to God. We know prayer is a privilege, but we know that it's something that we need to do. It, it, we know that it's something that gives us rest in God's sovereign purposes amid the trials and the anxiety. But we just never seem to get around to it, do we? Uh, unless it's a crisis situation. Now, what's interesting about Acts 12 is that while there are consequences for everyone here, this is also an intercessory prayer. We can't help but believe that they were praying for Peter as he waited his execution. Perhaps they were saying, you know, Lord, give him opportunities to share the gospel, even in this dark hour. Lord, if you're going to take his life, may you give him a bold proclamation. May he have a faith that is equal to the challenge. Here he is, waiting for his own execution. And there's earnest prayer on behalf of Peter. I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is that, when was the last time that we were so moved by the needs of someone else that when we went to a prayer meeting, when we were with someone else and we started praying, that time just melted away as we were fervently pleading on their behalf. Again, too often, it's even a list. Oh, so-and-so has got a bad back or so-and-so has an issue with their work. And we just ramble on down the list, getting it done as quickly as possible. Where is the weightiness of our prayer? Where is the earnestness of our prayer? Where is the heartfelt entering into and upholding our dear brother and sister in Christ. 
it's relatively easy to pray for ourselves when we have such a huge need. That's just naturally a part of our flesh, right? Oh, I'm going to pray now to God because I have this crisis. But you know what? It's so much harder to pray passionately for others when we don't really understand or experience the weightiness of their situation. Praying effectively for others demands a level of intimacy with God and an ability to enter into the trial, enter into the tragedy of others, to feel that weightiness and allow your soul to be so moved that you just cry unto God. Those who can do that, who pray effectively for others, have spent much, much time in prayer. And they've learned to trust God, his sovereignty in their own situation. And as we're going to see in a couple of minutes, such prayer is an acceptable sacrifice of the consecrated believers, this new church that we see in Jerusalem. As a result of this fervent, ardent, eager prayer uh, on behalf of Peter by the believers, verses 6 to 17 tells us that God delivers Peter from prison and certain death in, in a wonderful, miraculous way. Again, remember, Herod is determined to do something about these Jesus followers, but he knows that these leaders have some way of always getting out from underneath the, the final uh, uh, call, underneath the final penalty. They get away miraculously. We just have to go back to Acts chapter 5. And what do we know there? They were all rounded up. All of the apostles were rounded up. And, and somehow in the middle of the night, they all escaped. An angel of the Lord had let them out. So he's determined to make sure nothing like that happens again. So he assigns four sets of guards, 16 men in total, to watch over prison or watch over Peter as he's in prison. What that meant was that at all times, two people would be chained directly to Peter, while two more stood watch at the entrance to the cell. And they would switch off every four hours or so to make sure that no one got tired. No one, there was never a derelict in duty that, you know, he could never escape. Despite this seemingly impenetrable imprisonment, God again sends an angel to free Peter. And the iron gate swings wide open, the chains fall off, and they pass right by the guards without them knowing. What's amazing, truly amazing, is that the night that he's about to have a, a, a mock trial, hours away from, from being killed, we read that Peter's what? He's of all things. He, he's sleeping. Now, I, I, that wouldn't have been me. That would have been my natural reaction. This wouldn't have been an easy thing to do. I've never had chains on before, but I imagine that they were undoubtedly heavy, that they were awkward, they were noisy. And on top of that, he's bound, he's chained to two guards in this small cell. There's, there's not a lot, a lot of room to move around. And yet he slept soundly. Can you imagine the peace and the inner calm that he must have experienced? Hours, just hours from his death. And he has this deep sense of trust and faith in God. That is, if this is indeed his last breath, 
this is the will of God. You know, and I don't think that this was any light dozing off either, because it took a lot to wake him up, didn't it? There was a bright light. The angel struck him. And this was not a little nudge. This was hard enough to break him from this deep sleep that he was in. And then the angel spoke in an audible voice. And it wasn't a whisper. It was an anxious, you know, get up, get dressed, put your shoes on, put your coat on, follow me. But I'm sure even all of this didn't fully wake him up. You think about this. It's not until he gets outside and the angel leaves and he's walking down the street by himself that he suddenly becomes aware that, hey, this is for real. And he finally says in verse 11, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all of the Jewish people or all that the Jewish people were expecting. There, there were times when our girls were, were little. We put them into their car seats and we go for a drive somewhere and they would just conk out and you know you'd get out of the car and you'd need to get them out it was late at night and you'd be talking to them you would unbuckle them you would tell them uh, you got to move your arm and you would help them to do that and you would finally get them out so they could hear you they were doing the actions but you know what they just weren't there they were only going through the motions well, that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's so groggy from sleep, he's only half there. One pastor calls it a sleepwalk to freedom. In every way, this was truly a miracle. In fact, it's, it's a series of miracles. But why did God do it this way? Why could he have not just released Peter the night before? He could have just transported people, Peter right out of the cell. There didn't have to be a manifestation of the angel and the light and all that was going on. The only reasonable explanation is that God wanted to display his power in a very demonstrative way, not just to Peter, to the church, and to us, that he is able to save his people anytime, anywhere, and here is the absolute astounding thing. He does it by responding to the prayers of his people. Now, we know prayer is important. We know prayer can be powerful, but I don't really under, think that we understand what that means. Prayer is one of those things that we call a contingency. So in the Old Testament, God would make promises, but there was always a what if. And that what if was always repentance. This is what's going to happen. But if repentance happens, it can change the outcome or the final destiny uh, of how it was going to be worked out. Prayer is a contingency. It, it, it's not that prayer changes the will of God. That's, a, that's an understanding called open theology. And it's just a heresy that, that's out there these days, that somehow our prayers change the mind of God, change the plan of God. No, what we're talking about as prayer is a contingency is that prayer is powerful and that God at times binds his working of redemption to human actions. He says, when the, the people of God are earnestly seeking my face, that's when this is going to happen. 
And he does it that we might see the glory of God, that we might rejoice in the power of God, that our strength, or our faith might be strengthened. It's a very important reason to understand what's going on here in the moment and to see that, that, that there is a connection. Prayer is powerful because God commits some of his, his actions to the binding or binds them to the contingency of prayer. As the people of God submit themselves earnestly, fervently seeking his will, then things can happen. Once out of prison, the angel then leads Peter to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And there, poor Rhoda, she answers the gate, she recognizes his voice, but the others don't believe her. In reality, this is so comical. You can't read this and not laugh in your heart. In fact, if there are lots of parts of the Bible that if you don't laugh, uh, it's intended to be funny. Here's Peter. He's knocking at the outer gate. And the very person that they're praying for. But Rhoda is so overjoyed that she goes and tells the other, and she forgets to let Peter in. And that sounds strange, but this does happen, doesn't it? Uh, there were times in Chile when our girls were young, I would go for three, four days at a time to really remote areas. And, and I would have a designated time to call. But if I called outside of that designated time, I, I would get one of the girls and, and they were shocked. They weren't expecting me. They would answer the phone. They would hear my voice. And then what would they do? They would drop the phone and start running. And they would find mom or one of the other girls to let them know that dad was on the phone. They would forget all about me at that moment. And that's what happened with Rhoda. Instead of the others hearing and believing that Rhoda had actually heard and Peter was outside, and instead of rushing to the door immediately, they say, well, you're out of your mind. It must be his angel. It can't be him. And really, you know what? It, it gets to a question of, are our prayers expectant? Because we can't help but believe that somehow, some way, they were praying for Peter. And in that prayer, that God would release him. And, and here he is at the door. They've prayed for this. And yet, they just didn't expect it. Are our prayers expectant? All, all the time, Peter is standing there at the gate, knocking, knocking. And when they finally come to the door and they see him, it, there must have been such excitement, so much talking, so much noise, because he has to hush them up. He says, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. Now go and tell all the brothers everything that I've just told you. We don't know why God permitted the death of James and why he frees Peter so miraculously. But what we do know for sure, verse 4, tells us that it was the very day that the Jews were celebrating the Passover. The feast that, rem that remembered God's goodness and mercy in delivering them from the bondage of, of Egypt. God, again, is at work delivering his people, the new family of God. 
What an object lesson that must have been for the early church. God's power and will to deliver his people is just as strong, just as determined as it was back then when he brought them out of the grips of Pharaoh. His power is greater than Pharaoh's. His power is greater than Herod's. He can and will save. And there's nothing and no one that can thwart God's purposes. Wow, what a lesson. In verses 18 through 25, we see Herod's reaction to the escape. Even more than a reaction, we see basically a showdown between two rulers. On the one hand, there's King Herod the Roman king of Judea. He's intent on exterminating the followers of, of Christ. And on the other hand, we have the almighty God, Yahweh. As one would expect, when Herod finds out that Peter is no longer his prisoner, he scours the area. And when the search turns up nothing, he decrees that the guards should be killed. This sounds a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, but it was actually really common practice in the day. If a prisoner escaped, the guards' lives were forfeited because it was them who were supposed to be looking after them. And, you know, it really gave an incentive to do your job well. What happens next seems to be unrelated to all of what's going on here. Because we're told that during this time, during the time of Herod and, and, and the festivals, there was also a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These two city-states had for years had friendly relationships with Judea, and there had been this wonderful trade relationship, but now there is a bitter trade dispute, and, and Herod is in the mix of this. He's in the middle of it all and probably trying to extend his power and authority over a greater part of the Middle East. The important thing is that there's a special meeting convened. And Herod dresses up in all his fine clothing. He sits on his throne. He gives this wonderful, powerful speech, ingratiating himself to all of them. And they start yelling, that's the voice of a god and not a man. At this, God struck him down, and his body was eaten by worms. Why? Because we're told that Herod did not give the glory to God. So what's the relationship between these two stories? How do we know that they're connected? Well, they're connected with one seemingly insignificant word, struck. Verse 7, the angel strikes Peter to get him going. In verse 23, God strikes Herod unto death. Now, obviously, undoubtedly, God struck both in different ways or different degrees. One brought death, the other kind of woke Peter up in a stupor. But the word is intentionally the same. And, and along with this, so just keep that in mind here for a second. Along with this, we really need to understand when this is all happening. Because in his storytelling, <clears throat> in using this word struck, Peter wants, or sorry, Luke wants us to see that God is doing something special with the church that is parallel to what he did with Israel in the Old Testament. If we don't see this, we're simply going to think that there's two different stories that are unrelated going on. One, God sends 
an angel and to delivers Peter from prison. And the other, it, God strikes Herod dead. So when does all this happen, according to Luke? Verse 3 tells us that it was around the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Verse 4 tells us that it was immediately uh, upon the, uh, the Passover. Now, again, remember, the Passover is the institution, the feast that God has established, a celebration of his great salvation. God desiring to save his people from slavery by repeatedly demonstrating his power and authority over the gods in, of Egypt and over the plagues. And, and I'm stumbled there for a second because I go right back to uh, Exodus 2, and I think it's verse 8, where uh, as Moses is offering Isaac as a sacrifice, God says what? I have heard the prayers of my people. And now I'm sending you. So God's desire is to be worshipped. And he accomplishes that by delivering Israel out of bondage. And as soon as Israel does come out and goes into the wilderness, he institutes another feast. And what's that feast? That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It begins the night after the Passover. It celebrates Israel's deliverance and bondage, but there's something extra with it. It remembers their hasty retreat from Egypt, where the Israelite families had, they had to go through the house to scour it and get rid of any leaven. Both celebrate God's salvation, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread had an extra connotation to it. Because in Leviticus 23, 6, Leaven is a symbol of sin. So leaving Egypt in such a, a rush meant leaving behind the sinfulness of this world, leaving behind everything to follow God on a journey of holiness. And, and cleaning their houses of leaven was symbolic of getting rid of evil uh, in their lives. Now, can you start to see some of the connections going on here? As the Jews were celebrating, God's goodness to them in the city right at this time, first with the Passover and then with the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, we see God doing the same thing, committing himself to the same thing with the new family of faith, that is the church. Why did God take Herod's life? Because he didn't give the glory to God. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, it's, it warns us that sin is like leaven, in that left unchecked, it will permeate and infect everything around it. And that's why he, God struck Herod so that he died. He, Herod's desire was to destroy the church. He was leavened, and if God had not removed him, he would have destroyed the church. What Luke is pointing to is that there is a comparable situation here. Two corresponding miracles of God's saving grace. One saving the people of Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt and the birth of a new nation. The second saving the church from King Herod in Jerusalem and the birth of a new family of God that includes the Gentiles. It, it, it wasn't just Peter that was delivered. When God struck Herod, the church was also delivered because the leaven was removed. Now notice 
the last words, but the word of the Lord continued to grow. Here was Herod on the rampage to destroy the church, but eventually it was going to be him that was destroyed. In the face of all the odds, it is the word of God in conjunction with earnest prayers of God's people that is victorious. So what does this all mean for us this morning? Well, by applying the shadows of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Acts 12 portrays for us the exodus of the new people of God, the church. And Luke wants us to know with all confidence that God is committed to guide and direct his people just as he always did, in the same determination, in the same power, with the same purpose. He also wants us to know that the church is free from the constraints of, of national and cultural identity. The church is now going forth to the ends of the earth with the gospel. The rest of the book of Acts deals with the Gentiles. The church is now free from the constraints of nationalism and faith. It, it means that as an extension of, uh, of Acts, we here and now are, are released to spread the gospel to preach the good news to people everywhere. It means that no government, no power, no person can thwart the purposes of God because God is continuing to deliver. God is sovereignly in control. He can save and he can destroy. It means that God is still at work in the world today. What God did to bring Israel out of slavery he is still doing today through the preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that just widens my perspective of God's redemptive plan so that it excites me. It emboldens me to think that God is doing the same today as he did with Israel and bringing them out of captivity. As the gospel is preached, people come out of the chains of sin and become worshipers. It, it, it releases for me any of my fears, any of my inhibitions. Should I talk to my neighbor? What should I say? Do I have to have something prepared? It, it gives me hope for today that as bad as the situation may seem, the church in Canada is just seems to be going down the tubes. We have a government who wants to continue to build up ungodly restrictions on the church. We have the pandemic. We have the threat of wars. We have all of this. But God is our hope that he continues to deliver and redeem his people. And here's something that we really need to think about. It's the importance of prayer. If prayer is a contingency, if God does at times connect the outworking of his redemptive plan, of the power of the gospel to our prayer, oh, we better grasp the importance of this. Prayer must be a priority. We need to grab hold of it. We need to pray expectantly. We need to pray impassionately. We need to be eager. We need to be fervent. Because we don't know if and when our prayers are aligned with the perfect will of God and his purposes will be revealed before us. And they will be revealed for one purpose 
that is to glorify him and to strengthen us. Oh, I, I truly hope that we grasp this, that prayer is a contingency in the outworking of God's plan. We don't change the will of God, but God does at times wait upon his people that they would be so impassioned in the reality of, of, the, of the moment, the weightiness of, of the situation to plead with all earnestness. God will work. It means our evangelism, we're to go forth boldly. God delivers. This, this God who saved Israel out of, the, out of the clutches of death and slavery continues to bring people to salvation today. God removes the impediments of the gospel. And he empowers us to preach. Let us pray.